And thank you, Kevin, for leading us in prayer. Greg, for leading us in worship. Um, and that was, uh, that was a difficult moment for all of us. Um, and we will, uh, we're grateful, again, that she's stable uh, right now. And we'll let you know if there's anything, any changes to that. But I think things are going in the right direction there for right now. Well, um, I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point Church. Um, and it's good to see you. I hope you're able to catch your breath. Um, that's always hard for me to, to go through moments like that, and maybe you're like that too. But um, anyhow, grateful for medical professionals who help in situations like that. Uh, welcome to those online who are watching. Good to see you online. Um, you're joining us in a brand new series that we're calling Better Together. And to jump right in, I want to take you back in time, about 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years, on a journey to an ancient city that looks like this. It may look pixelated because the iPhone camera did not develop this film very well back when it was taken. Um, but this was, uh, let's say, in the 60s or so. And what you're looking at is an ancient city called Thessalonica. Thessalonica. Uh, this was a city that if you wanted to go to a lively, modern, uh, hip, strong, uh, kind of avant-garde city, you would go here. Um, there was, was a major uh, port city and a major trade route came right through that. And so the ships would come up with all of their merchandise and kind of go through Thessalonica and back out the other side, major trade road going through there. So big, big city um, in the sense of its influence in the day. And that's the background for what I want to invite you to turn to in your Bible. If you have your Bible with you, we're going to turn there right away this morning. If you don't own a Bible, there's one in the chair near you. But Acts 17 um, is going to is set in the context of Thessalonica. It's in this city that we're going to read what we're going to read here in a minute. If, again, if you don't own a Bible, it's our gift to you in the chair. You'll find Acts in the right two-thirds of your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. Acts chapter 17, beginning right away at verse 1, um, and we, we read Luke, who is a follower of Jesus, writing these words. He says, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. So some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So things seemed to be going up and to the right, except verse 5. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Imagine that. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd in the city Officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post-bond and let them go. Now, can you imagine yourself being there for a minute? Can you imagine yourself? Can you imagine yourself being Jason? How would you like this moment? All you did was open your doors to Paul and Silas to come in. And after they come in and preach, the whole city, 200,000 people, is thrown into turmoil. A mob has been formed. A riot is happening. 
And the city officials, they literally, they come into your house and say, just because you hosted them, you need to come answer for yourself. You're drugged through the streets, through the crowd. The city officials say, we're keeping you until you pay us and post bond to get out of here. And by the way, don't ever do this again. What's your response? Now, don't say it out loud. I can imagine, we think that our world... Um, that our, our world is politicized today, right? We think that there's anger on either side today, right? Sure, we've experienced that. But look at this. Look at this. Look at this. What would be the natural response? I would say retribution. That would make sense. Getting even. Maybe we would encourage Jason to power up. Maybe to punish those people. Maybe to shame them for doing the wrong thing and to kind of get on the right side and create two different factions and fight for what's right. You know, that would make sense. That would make sense. But there's a completely different approach. There's a completely different approach. And that's the approach that I want to take you to in, in just a second here. Because what this series, Better Together, is built on, first of all, it's built on the seed or the principle of the gospel. It's the gospel that extends to friendship among believers. And then it's the gift of the gospel that extends through friendship to the benefit of the world around us. This is what we mean by better together that we're better together individually as people who are seeking to follow Christ, and the world is better as we seek to reach out and extend out the hope of the gospel this way. So what would, how, would Jason, how should Jason respond? What would it look like for him to respond in a kind of an appropriate way as an early follower of Christ? Here's what um, Paul had to say in 1 Thessalonians 5.15. Paul later wrote a letter to this very city, to Thessalonica. And here's what he had to say. Imagine, just keep in context what we just read. Here's what he had to say in chapter 5, verse 15. He started this way in that verse. He said, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. Just starts there. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. So make sure, that's a phrase that means I want you to, to set up a system to establish it and be sure. Don't just hope that that happens, but I want you to hold each other accountable. I want you to be confident. I want you to set something in place so that you are sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. Why would he say this? I would argue that the reason Paul writes this to this church is because this is what he saw modeled in Jesus. Jesus turned the other cheek, right? Jesus went to the cross on our behalf, right? Jesus was tortured and falsely accused, and yet didn't pay back wrong for wrong. So when Paul begins talking to Jason about how to respond in the world that he lives in and how the church in Thessalonica who's surrounded by people who are angry and ready to destroy them and ready to, to ruin them, how should this early church respond in the middle of a, such an adverse environment? He says, well, first of all, let's just start with the basics. Let's just make sure that you don't pay back wrong for wrong. And when you think about that, that's truly kind of a passive position. That's the least common denominator. I'm just going to, all right, if that's all you want, I'll just sit back and I'll, I'll take it. If that's all you want. But Paul goes further. He said, I don't want you to just sit back and don't pay it back. I want you to always strive to do what is good for each other. So not only do I expect that you won't pay back wrong for wrong, as, as Christians, I want you to be clear that, that because of Christ, we are not to pay back wrong for wrong. And beyond that, I want you to do more. I want you to go out and reach out to strive for doing what is good for each other. And the each other here means specifically for those who also claim to be Christ followers or Christians. 
He's speaking specifically to people who are Christians, early Christians. He's saying, I want you to do good for each other. Look out for each other. Why would I say that? Because the next phrase is so powerful, so powerful and so important. Not only for each other, but then he finishes this verse, and for everyone else. And for everyone else. And so for you all, as early followers of Jesus, when the whole town goes into a riot and when everyone is ready to ruin you and and crucify you, I don't want you to pay back wrong for wrong. I want you to strive to do what's good for each other, hold strong together in friendship. You're better together. But then also, I want you to take this to everyone else, to everyone else, to all those out there. This is such a powerful idea. Now, for us today, on this side of history, this just seems normal. Like, isn't, isn't the world kind of supposed to be nice anyway? Aren't people just supposed to be moral even if they don't follow Christ anyway? And I would argue no. I would say that the early church, early Christianity, so deeply influenced our world that there are some things that even non-Christians do today that were influenced by the gift of Christianity and by the teachings of Christ and his early followers. One of these things we'll see in just a second, how the early church developed. But, I, but before I get there, I want you to turn to one more passage, all right? Because um, as you're turning here, I'm going to make one more point, and here's going to be what I hope that you'll remember this morning, that what, what Paul is writing about, what he's trying to get after is this, this, that they were to take the early church, the early Thessalonians, they were to take the good that they experienced in the gospel and model it with each other and then extend it to their enemies. That kind of just became his expectation. That the early church, take the good that you experienced in the gospel because Christ died for you. He didn't turn back wrong for wrong. You experience that. Now model it with each other and extend it to everybody. Model it with each other and extend it to everybody. Over and over. Why would he say that? If you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Just back up a little bit. You're in Acts, I think, right now. Back up a little bit. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Matthew 5, beginning at verse 38. Here's where we nail this down to, this idea down to. Matthew 5, 38. Jesus is speaking here, and he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Some of you have heard this verse before, right? And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Then he continues in verse 43, saying that God is the model here. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but, but I tell you, and this is the foundation of, of really Christian ethic and love, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? And then he finishes in verse 48 with a confusing verse. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Some people have thought, Some people have thought that this perfection means that we have to work to be perfect in what we call our sanctification, all right? Some people have thought what we have to do is we got to be 
be perfect. We've got to make sure that we have a, a regular quiet time all the time. We can't ever slip up on that. We have to make sure that we're perfect in church attendance. We can't slip up on that. We have to make sure that we're perfect here and perfect there and perfect and perfect. And I would argue it isn't the case. Look at what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about love. You may remember that elsewhere in the New Testament, we read and we hear, perfect love casts out fear. Remember that? Perfect love casts out fear. I think what Jesus is saying here is be perfect in the sense that perfect love, perfect love both for each other and for all, casts out all fear. It's the perfect love of a heavenly father to all people. He's calling people, I would argue, to a kind of perfect expression of love for one another. Not that everything that you and I do is going to be perfect, but that our striving is for an expression of the perfect love of God to all people, including each other, but extending to the world. Now, the question becomes, did the early church do this? Did they do this? And I would argue they did. Now, let me, let me take you past your Bible for a minute in history. All right? We think that the last book in the New Testament was written somewhere around 90 A.D. We think that Jesus died on the cross uh, in the 30s, that the last book was written somewhere in the 90s. Between 90 and about 313, all right? It's a couple hundred years, about 200 years. For about 200 years, the early story of the church, here's what an early church um, leader, Tertullian, said. He said, the, the seed of the church is the blood of the martyrs. That with great regularity, people who called themselves Christians were killed, tortured for their faith. There was incredible persecution for the first couple hundred years of the church. In 313, a new emperor came to power in Rome, Constantine. Constantine became emperor in 313. He, he wrote and passed the Edict of Toleration. How about that? The Edict of Toleration. This kind of brought in a, a moment in church history of peace for the church. The problem is when the church is um, not under any kind of attack or under any kind of pressure, like all of us, we can tend to kind of atrophy or become weak or lose our edge. And there began to be corruption inside of the church, even within Constantine's period of peace for the church. Constantine ended up dying course, as people do. He had um, three kids that he left, the three sons that he left his kingdom to. All right, that's all fine and good. Constantine, as far as we understand, was a, was a Christian, a follower of Christ. So his three sons, you know what they decided to do? They decided to kill their whole family. It's an interesting idea. They killed all the family. The reason is they didn't want any threats to the kingdom. They left two of their family members alive. One was a five-year-old boy. His name was Julian. Julian, as you can imagine, hold on, we're being attacked by subatomic sound waves right now, and they're trying to... ...the mic, otherwise I'll keep going.
remember that Julian the Apostate It's on account of us. We're not doing a good enough job. And then he goes on. But, he said, but the gifts of the gods are great and splendid, better than any prayer or any hope. So he's trying to lift up the spirits of the people. And he says it this way. Indeed, a little while ago, no one would have dared even to pray for such a change and so complete a one in so short a space of time. What he's saying is, remember when Constantine was emperor? Who would have ever thought only about 30 years later, I would have this kind of power. Who could have ever dared for and hoped for such a change and such a complete one that we went from a Christian emperor to me? Who could have ever have doubted that or wondered about that? So indeed, he's saying the gods are great. However, however, and here's the point of Julian's quote here. Julian has a big problem. He has a big problem. And here's the way he, he puts it in his words. He puts it this way. Why then do we think that this is sufficient and do not observe how the kindness of Christians to strangers, their care for their burial of their dead, and the sobriety of their lifestyle has done the most to advance their cause. That is powerful. This is in the late 360s, 370s that he writes this. What he's saying is, to his kingdom, we have a problem. If we want to turn this thing to paganism, he didn't want to just kill everybody. He didn't want to do that. He wanted to subvert their thinking. He wanted to change the way that they engaged their world. He wanted to, to kind of do a, an intellectual battle, so to speak. He, he said, we have a problem. And the problem that we're facing when he looks out there is this, the kindness of Christians. I can't win the battle of moving the kingdom to paganism, because Christians are being too stinking kind. And they are caring for the burial of their dead. Now, you and I think that's just normal. Doesn't everybody care for their dead? No. That's why he said it. We spend thousands of dollars now on dead people to honor them properly, right? And we wouldn't think anything of it. Where did this come from? It came from early Christians who did the same thing. This is caring for the least of those. And his third problem with Christians, the sobriety of their lifestyle. They are not the extreme. They are not losing their mind when they're attacked in Thessalonica. They are not turning back wrong for wrong. They are not living on the far extremes. They are sober in their lifestyle. And so as he looks out in the kingdom and he wants paganism to grow, he's like, we have a problem. It's Christians. They are too kind. They care for the least of these so well. And they are the, so sober in how they live that it is so attractive for people. And unless we deal with those things, paganism will never get root. 
This is, this is a pagan emperor. Can you imagine that? This is a couple hundred years after Paul writes what he wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5.15. So now, let me say it again. I believe this. Early Christians took the good that they experienced in the gospel, they modeled it with each other, and they extended it even to their enemies. This is Paul's call. Don't, don't turn back wrong for wrong. Always strive to do what's good for each other and, and for everyone else. Jesus, turn the other cheek. God the Father causes the sun to shine, the rain to fall, and the evil and the good. Even Julian recognizes this. Which is why, building on that, this is why for us at Grace Point, this is why we talk about it this way. Our vision here is to be a transforming presence in the town square. Where does that come from? It comes from this very thread of hope for, for the Christian experience, for the Christian life. It comes from this space. They're saying, we want to do good. We want to do good in our town square. We want to do good in the places where we are. What do we mean by a town square? Let me put it this way. The town square is the center of community influence. The town square is the center of community influence. It's the place. It's the place where the community is shaped socially, how people relate to people. It's shaped spiritually, how they connect to God. It's, it's shaped culturally, how people connect to all the systems around them, education, housing, food, transportation, our economic systems. This is where it is. And so if Christians are to get involved in that space, you can be sure that our values are not always going to be represented there. There's going to be reason to argue. There's going to be reason to get upset. There's going to be reason to kind of be almost like Jason taken through the streets and say, hey, you're not one of us. But how can Christians reason in this space? This is where I come back to. Here's the principle. The gospel is the center. Jesus Christ went to the cross. He didn't return wrong for wrong. Strove to do what was good for Christians and for everybody else. Because of that, Paul makes this, this, desire, this call. Give this same kind of love to each other that we are better together as we sharpen and strengthen each other in friendship and then push it out to everybody else. The gospel is centric. Our friendships are modeled with strength and everyone else is a benefit in our world of the beauty of the gospel lived out in, in strong and intentional friendship and relationship with our world, both at a corporate and personal level. So that's what I'm, as I wrap this up, let me put it this way, that there are both corporate and personal town squares. If you've been at Grace Point, you may have heard us talk about our town square vision before. It's not just for the corporate church. It's for us personally. It's for me. It's for you. It's not just that we as a church are interested in helping our community, which we are. This is why we're involved in the Together Initiative with the factory ministries. But it's also personal. Like many of you don't even live in this immediate community, right? And that's fine. Like we don't all need to move here. This is about your town square. This is about your family. This is about the people you go to school with. It's about the people who are in your friend groups. It's the people who are right around you, who influence your community. And so I have two questions as I think about this personally that I hope to, to drill down. The first question is this. Personally, think about it this way. Really simple questions. Who is right around me who could use some help? Who is right around me that could use some help? The second question is this. What problems consistently rise to the surface? 
who's right around me who could use some help, and what problems consistently rise to the surface? These two questions, to me, are so helpful to frame up and think about how I engage my community. Let me tell you why this is important. This is important to me because this, this is the very impetus for the growth of the church. This is what Julian the apostate was seeing. He was seeing as he looked out trying to turn the kingdom from being Christian influence to being pagan. He's like, my problem is there's too many people who are kind, who are Christian. They're too sober in their lifestyle. They care for the least of these more than anybody else, and I can't turn to my way because they're living so well. It's frustrating. This matters, not because of the fulfillment of some vision of a church, but this matters because this is the very way that God is related to us. In Romans, Paul writes, it's, he said, don't ever forget. Don't ever forget it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's God's kindness shown to us that leads us to repentance. Christ died on the cross out of his kindness and love. Paul is writing to people like Jason and saying, don't go out in the streets, Jason, and start returning wrong for wrong. Always strive to do what's good. At the very heart of the gospel and the way that the early church and community expresses itself, it's in friendship with one another, in deep love for each other based on the gospel, that then, that then, that then always extends out into our world. So the world is a beneficiary of how we then live. So what does that look like? Imagine if you're a junior high or a high school student, here's what it could look like. You've got a friend struggling with mental health issues. You've got a friend who's depressed or discouraged. This might mean, quite simply, who around me could use some help. You ask the question. Well, you know what? I have a friend who's been struggling. They're anxious. They're lonely. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to support them personally. I'm going to go with them to the guidance counselor. I'm going to go with them to a pastor. I'm going to go with them to a parent. Simple. Simple. We're not moving mountains. We're just stepping in friendship. What does this look like for a, a parent of a young kid? It might mean that you see the opportunity to coach soccer or softball or, I don't know, lacrosse. I don't Anyway, chess even. I don't care. And you don't know anything about the sport, but you're willing. You're willing to go help, and you step in to a community need. You have the chance to relate in friendship with the kids and their parents, but then you also learn that the community needs a new playing field. You have some business contacts. You work your contacts. You get a little bit of support for the township to help put a new playing field. At the end of the day, everybody wins. The kids have a safe place to play, and you've been able to leverage your business and professional network, and your kids also have a chance to engage each other, and you have stepped into your community in a meaningful way just to be present, to see a problem that surfaced, and to see, here's how I can solve it. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom. I've never been a stay-at-home mom, but I hear, I hear it can be tiring, it can be lonely, it can be discouraging. So stay-at-home mom, what are you supposed to do? Change the whole world? What if I'm not asking to change the whole world? What if, what if it's simple? What if it's these questions? Who's around me who could use some help? And what if when you ask that, you realize that your group is just kind of that each other group? You know those other ladies in the church, even right around you in your neighborhood, who could just use uh, some fresh air? You decide to text a few people. Let's go for a walk in the park on Saturdays, first Saturday of the month. Start going for a walk. Simple. Step out, engage. 
It's a problem. Consistently rises to the surface. All of a sudden, you start meeting, you start walking. Maybe some other people get involved. It's a chance to encourage each other. Not all of your burdens are removed, but you stepped in out of kindness, have offered a little bit of something. You start to pray with one another, encourage each other. Things are still hard at home, but you stepped in. This is the transforming presence in the town square, socially, spiritually, culturally. You're retired. You have an opportunity to volunteer with your schedule. You volunteer at the factory ministries in their food market, in their factory market. You come to learn, as you meet people who come in for their appointments weekly, you come to learn that the housing problem in our community is real. You realize how big a problem it is, what problems consistently rise to the surface. Man, housing, we have a housing problem. You start talking to your professional network, and while you don't have answers yet, you do realize that as you're meeting with people, you're hearing their stories, you're engaging with them, you still feel the weight of the difficulty of trying to solve the housing need, but all of a sudden you are more present with those who are walking through those doors. And your mind and your heart is moving toward how can I help support in some way all of the people who are trying to make a difference, and you're now involved. You're now being kind. You're now in the sobriety of your lifestyle using what God has given you to serve the good of those around you. So this is why I think, this is why I think if I put it this way, that when Paul wrote what he wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5.15, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. Don't get involved in that fight. That doesn't do anything for us. Don't get involved in that. But always, he says, always strive to do what's good for each other and for everyone else. And for everyone else. Because Christians, Christians, they take the good that they experienced in the gospel and they model it with each other. And then they extend it even to their enemies. And that is how the church throughout time has moved forward. It hasn't gotten involved in the fighting and the wrong things. It stayed involved in the right things, in the message of the gospel and the hope of Christ and the love that he has for all people, for each other and extending it out. Who's around you that could use some help? What problems do you see consistently coming to the surface? If you give time for those two questions, I am sure that there will be opportunity for you, even in a small step, to do good for one another. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be together this morning to gather around a, an ancient passage with a significant, with significant power to it. I pray for us as we strive to know each other well, to get to know one another well, to be connected to each other, to sharpen each other, to keep each other on point, with the implications of the gospel message that you can help us both to learn to love each other well but then not just to keep it insular not just to be our own little community doing our own little thing but that we like the church has always done extended out the good of the gospel even to those who are considered our enemies we don't repay wrong for wrong. We always strive to do what is good because that's the basis of our faith. That's what Christ himself did for us. So give us the vision and the courage to take a step, to see our friend group just a little bit differently, 
to see the stage of life we're in maybe just a little bit differently. Help us to see that we play a role personally, personally. We play a role. We don't need to move mountains. We might just need to take one step. We might just need to send one text. We might just need to send one email, make one phone call, reach just a little bit to extend the love and mercy of God to people around us. So Father, I pray that you give us vision, give us courage. In Jesus' name we pray.